Welcome to Into Theology. I am joined with Owen Anderson and Ian Clary today, and we're doing something a little bit different than normal. We normally talk about the theology of great books or great theological books, and Job is one of them. Today, we are going to talk about Job. We're going to talk about it as a great work of philosophy in the ancient world. Uh, we're joined by Owen Anderson, who's writing a book on that topic. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, as we get going, though, Ian, I want you to, as we talked about, to read a, a part of uh, Job chapter three to kick us off with the text. Yeah, so we're going to kind of start things off here by just considering uh, Job's lament. And, uh, you know, this will kind of lead us into a discussion of what the heck it was that happened to this guy. Uh, his lament had nothing to do with Winnie the Pooh. All right. So uh, Job uh, 3 and verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May, it mor may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For do not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. So, I mean, that's part of like this great lament uh, in all of chapter three, um, that Job is sort of praying out loud, or crying out loud to those who could hear him about this condition that he's in. And so that's what we want to talk about now, kind of on a philosophical level, is what it was that happened uh, to Job. And so... Having somebody like you, Owen, here, um, I think will be really kind of insightful. Uh, so I'm going to turn it over to you, Wyatt, and yeah. you can introduce our guest. Yeah. Uh, just a quick broad question. Do you think uh, this is in, in any lectionary readings for Sunday? Just <laughs> Actually, Job was used. I think we talked about this. Job was okay. used as uh, as Lenten reading. Uh, okay. In the tradition. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay, so let's get to Owen Anderson, because we need to explain why you're joining us today. So, yeah. Owen, um, I'll let you explain. You wrote something on the philosophy of Job. So what did you write? Who are you? And why are you qualified to write something on Job? Yeah, well, yeah the last the last part, especially. <laughs> Maybe not why you're qualified. Wait, why you want to? One. I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Arizona State University. And uh, I teach philosophy and philosophy of religion, especially, and classes like Religion in America, Introduction to Christianity, so I've, I've had books in, in all of those fields. I, I turned to Job for this book and I titled it. Do, do you mind if I show it? Yeah, Because the book is available. Um, Job. And I, I subtitled it A Philosophical Commentary. Because whether I'm going through the, the philosophy of religion and the problem of evil, or I'm going through introduction to Christianity, Job stands out as really the best statement and solution of the problem of evil. And I hadn't found... A, a philosophical treatment of it. So I wanted to fill that gap and treat this as if it was a, a philosophy textbook. And so let me explain what that means because Christians would believe it's inspired. But for the purpose of analyzing it as a philosophy text, I'm not sure that adds or subtracts one way or the other. Just look at this and say, what arguments are being presented? And in that way, it's almost a bridge between general and special revelation. I made the case, I, this depends, I guess, on one's dating of Job, but assuming Job was early in human history, 
that really, I think Job's the first philosopher. Um, I, I think most people would probably think he's living before Thales. So even if you think he's kind of, if you take a younger side uh, or, or more recent, I guess, side of Job, you'd still think he's before Thales. So he's, he's before the Greek philosophers. And I think he's wrestling with really the philosophical problem that faces all of us. So there's lots of philosophical problems, but the one that gets us personally is this problem of suffering. And so we see that with Job, and then the book itself is a dialogue. So, so, so you can say, well, this is like a platonic dialogue. Well, no, the other way around. The platonic dialogues are kind of like Job. It came first. And, and so we see views being presented, arguments being given, and, and then them being objected to, refuted. And, and there's a buildup in the book. So for that reason, I said, yeah, we need to have a philosophical treatment of it. Now, that's not to say I don't think it's also inspired, but I think this adds all the more to it. It's like, it's like a, an a fortiori argument. How much the more so do we see that in this book? So that, that's, how, that's how I filled it in. Yeah, in terms of credentials, I don't know, maybe I have none. Uh, but my credentials would be, yeah, having te- uh, taught philosophy religion, this is my ninth book, and I'm uh, also a... Uh, adjunct professor at Phoenix Seminary for the last seven years, where I teach philosophical theology. So I, I bring all those things to it. I think I bring therefore a unique view. Like this is not a linguistic book. I don't get into the details of Hebrew, and it's not an, not an archaeology book. I'm not getting into some new proof of when Job lived. It's a philosophical book. So it's well within my my uh, area of specialization. It's interesting, too, to further kind of draw some of those connections when you think of its high literary quality as almost very poetic. Um, And then you relate that to somebody like Plato, right, where his dialogues have such a high literary quality to them. And then you kind of go down through the modern period and you just see the relationship between philosophy and literature. You know, Iris Murdoch might be somebody you might think of or even, you know, the existentialists like Sartre. Uh, who's there, these Kierkegaard writing novels uh, in some senses, plays, poetry uh, that's deeply philosophical. So you can see a further connection there too. Yeah. Well, and you'd asked about the uh, publisher. Um, it's published by uh, Logos Papers Press, which is an imprint of another publisher, uh, Public Philosophy <clears throat> Press. And this is the first book with Logos Papers Press, but uh, Public Philosophy Press has a number of books out already. And and Logos Papers Press is connected to uh, Logos Theological Seminary here in Phoenix. And that's been going for about a little over 25 years with the goal of training up teachers in various areas of life, whether it's in the family, you need to build a teacher family, or in the church, or in K through 12, or in college, both uh, Christian or secular. And the the doctrinal standard for the seminary is the Westminster Confession of Faith. So you will see in the commentary I referenced that uh, one of one of my endorsements. I think I got some really nice endorsements. And one of the endorsements uh, said, "Yeah, this one thing about this book it is philosophical, but it won't scandalize Orthodox believers. It's it's within what is called magisterial Protestantism." So yeah, so so the the logos. Papers Press takes the the first line, especially of the Westminster Confession, that the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do reveal God, so that unbelief is without excuse. And that's a theme, I think, in the book of Job. So I have a, just a quick kind of follow-up. So if Job is, let's say, the first recorded or written or, or extant 
a philosopher that we know of. Um, so, uh, like, you have the book of Ecclesiastes, too, which is often yeah. viewed a little bit early. And, and Ian and I were talking about it. We, it reminded us a little bit about some of this kind of philosophical dialogues in the schools, because I think the idea of, uh, of the Kohelet is someone who is within a sort of group of people, and there are there seems to be discussion going on. The way in which Ecclesiastes is actually framed is sort of like how people talk. It's not like mm -hmm. a finely tuned thesis, four or five points conclusion, but rather kind of a more conversational tone. Yeah. So I guess Ecclesiastes and Job maybe are kind of two books, would you kind of say, that say. share this sort of philosophical point of view? Yeah, if somebody was to want to argue that point, like, like well, this one's, uh, I think Job was before Solomon, but in terms, but if, you know, you have some argument back and say, no, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, Ecclesiastes is doing something very similar. And also the Psalms. I mean, the in my commentary, I, I reference how many times there's parallels with the Psalms or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. So yeah, the c contrast the Greek philosophy with simply summarizing philosophy this way, the, the beginning of wisdom is a fear of the Lord. And someone will say, well, that's more like faith, not philosophy. So I'm, I'm okay taking that burden. I'll, I'll, show, I'll show you why. No, that's actually the beginning of philosophy itself. And if we begin to pursue wisdom in some other way, we won't get there. Hmm. So, okay, so we read uh, already Job 3, which is this kind of harrowing uh, poem where the author wants to basically die. <laughs> That's how the book begins, at least uh, outside the narrative framing. So if we're going to look at a book like Job as a, as a work of philosophy, <clears throat> like what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for the reader? Like, what does that mean practically? Like, how do you read Job that way? Yeah, let's think about that. <clears throat> just because even before 3, just getting into the story you're all of a sudden presented with this heavenly conflict. Mm -hmm. And we might, that part, you might say, I'm not sure I relate to that. Like, I'm not sure uh, Satan is having any interest in testing me personally, right? Well, I think that's part of what's going on here. It's, it's sort of like uh, Job, if Job's at the best, at the pinnacle, and he can be brought down, then any of the rest of us can also, right? It's like seeing a, a big prize fight. Top of the class. If this guy could be beaten, then I can be beaten because I'm much further down the line than him. So, and it's interesting that God brings up Job, right? Not Satan. Mm -hmm. uh, Satan presents himself as going through the works of God. I've just been going, uh, going through considering, uh, well, yeah, what's Satan doing with himself? I, I think there's parallels here, which I draw out in the book between Genesis 3 and Satan here. I mean, it's the same tempter and the same kind of temptation. And it says, have you considered my servant Job? And I make that a theme in the book. Because Satan should consider God's servant Job, and we should consider God's servant Job with what's about to be revealed. So the test that happens to Job is a revelation. At one point, he even says, I wish this could be written down in a book. And it is, and it's a testament to the entire world of what happened. And the revelation, not just about Job, particularly about God and what God did. So Satan here just like in Genesis 3, brings about his own ruin. Uh, and so I think we can relate to that in some sense and consider my servant Job. And then that gets us into chapter 3. And, and it's worse than what you said, actually, Wyatt, because you said he wishes he was dead. And I, I think about that with like Hamlet, who's really having a hard time in life. And he's trying to decide, hey, is it even worth going on? And then he thinks about how it might get worse when I die. But uh, Job goes back a step further. I wish I hadn't even existed. 
Because if if the world has if this is what the world is like, if the world is so mismanaged, I don't want to be a part of it. It's not just now I want out to go to a better world. This is supposed to be a good world. I'm out of this one, right? Hmm. So that's quite a statement. And I think that's it pushes the Hamlet problem even further. It sounds to me like you're talking or you're hinting at at least kind of also like a, pro- a problem of natural evil. There's mm-hmm. a problem in this world in which things are not how they ought to be. Uh, and yet the framing of the book of Job, as you mentioned, is God in heaven uh, talking with the accuser, Satan, and uh, kind of overseeing events on earth in which natural evil occurs. Yeah. So does the book of Job, does it resolve the problem of evil? Yeah, well, I, I think it does. I think it gives an excellent uh, solution. And I that think was that's a really one of the main... quick answer. <laughs> Sorry, what? just a quick side note. This is like the main problem of humanity. Yeah. Does it <laughs> I think it does. Well, what's unfortunate is some of the common answers, which I'll talk okay. about in okay. a minute, okay. <laughs> which, which don't do justice to the book. And because of that, make it so it's not considered. Like they actually are a hindrance to considering God's servant Job. Uh, one example is that the solution is God can do whatever he wants. He just shows up, you know, flexes and Job has to say, Hey, sorry about that. And there's, there's the, uh, believers use of that solution. And also unbelievers use that solution. Like that's Carl Jung's, uh, solution also. Hmm. So there's, so I, I argue against that view. I don't think that's ultimately what's going on. So is he like, is he anticipating the nominalists and the voluntarists and saying, Hey, like, uh, God can do, God can do whatever he wants, you know? Yeah, and that kind of solution, yeah. I, well, so I think, uh, does it, so, yeah, uh, why you were asking too about natural evil, I think that's a tension in the center of the book. All three of his his friends are wrestling with versions of the relationship between moral evil and natural evil. And they're mostly, they're on the side of, if you did moral evil, then you're punished with natural evil. Now, I don't think that's the, the order taught in Genesis 3 when we first had natural evil, right? Because there wasn't always natural evil. It comes in in the curse after sin. Hmm. And so a couple of things I say at the beginning of this book is if you don't really understand what's going on in Genesis 1 through 3, you're not going to understand Job. And if you don't understand what's revealed in general revelation, you'll miss the solution in Job. Like Carl Jung didn't understand what's clear from general revelation, so he misses it. Hey, can I ask you a controversial question that's a bit of a side note because you brought up Genesis? Yeah. Um, did, uh, did animals die before the fall? Yeah, that's really interesting. Because you, <laughs> you don't have to answer micro, it if it's say, oh, answer there's, it. there's no death before the fall. What about bacteria? Like no bacteria yeah, ever died. Did Eve step on uh, an ant by accident? That kind of thing. Yeah, right, right. Well, minimally this, it's not just Genesis. It's Isaiah promising us that in the end, the lion will eat straw at the ox and lay down with the lamb. So minimally... It seems that that's not that's not a new thing. That's a return to the way it was. Lions aren't eating other things; they're eating the green. But do they ever die of old age? I think death for humans is different than death for animals. Aha! Uh-huh. That's a good In point. Why? The need to make sense of it and have meaning for animals, it's just a practical problem: how to avoid dying, and and we have that same problem. But then humans up the problem. To not only do we have a practical problem that I don't want to die, but I have an existential problem of where's God? Why did God make me so I die? Animals don't wrestle with that one. So, so in Job 39, there's this fascinating passage at the very end of 39 about an eagle. And, um, you know, it talks about the eagle and so on. 
And then it says this in verse 30 of chapter 39. His young ones suck up blood and where the slain are, there is he. And this is in part of, you know, God is Lord of nature. Uh, 3930. I just find it so fascinating. So it starts in 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings above the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there is he. So you have this fascinating passage about God as Lord of nature. Elihu kind of builds up to it. And insofar as he is, you, you have this almost a positive view of uh, animals eating yeah. animals. Which is, yeah, I think, odd I mean, I want to read that as a comment about Creation. Genesis 2. I'd read that as a comment about How God are. imposed natural evil. And and so this is a oh, direct... Hold on. You've got to explain what that means. <laughs> How does God impose natural evil? Yeah, Genesis chapter 3, after death, a- after sin, right? Uh, the world becomes filled with natural evil, including your own death. So why isn't God the author of sin or evil? Well, well death and physical death is not a, a moral action, right? Sin mm-hmm. is moral choice. So in 2006, there was a tsunami uh, in the South, I think Southeast Asia, I think it was 2006. And I'm going to get all the facts wrong, so sorry, but it's just that's okay. something that's, like that's half a million. This you. is going to be yeah, uh, so that's really common Voltaire's for me. Lisbon, a version of Voltaire's Lisbon. But something like half a million, I think, people die. It's an extreme yeah. tragedy. Um, that would be natural evil, but that's not moral evil. Is that the distinction you're making? Right, yeah. Tsunami is not, unless, unless maybe there's some people who say tsunamis are caused by human pollution, Tsunamis aren't, or you believe there's like the government has satellites that can shoot laser beams and heat up the Hmm. water. Otherwise, no one thinks that uh, humans morally cause tsunamis on each other. But but that's the problem that God is. So I mentioned Carl Jung, for example, he's a Gnostic. And so what what the polytheists and the Gnostics do is they say the God of Genesis is the evil God. Mm -hmm. He's the God who imposed death on the world. And if you listen to the God of enlightenment, Lucifer, He'll free you from the god of death, right? But it, yeah, it's, Genesis it's, three is pretty pretty direct. God imposes death on the world. I, I like the god so, <laughs> Lucifer, you know, yeah. light, and then that's how he presents. Yeah, no, Carl Young in Carl Young's commentary that that's how he presents. He says, interesting. He says explicitly that the the second son of Yahweh is teaching the older son. Hmm how to instruct Yahweh and Yahweh is learning lessons through the book of Job. So mm-hmm. that's the hermetic or occult tradition. Lucifer, the second son is actually helping both uh, Christ and God, the father learn things. And that's all, the, but that's all part of the solution that they're giving, right? Cause what they're saying is God would never be involved with natural evil, but that's not mm-hmm. what we're seeing in scripture. And I, I think it's consistent with the nature of God as well, that, that yeah, God, the, the role of natural evil in Genesis 3 is not as a punishment. It's as a call to stop and think. And how we know it's not a punishment is that there's also the promise of the seed of the woman who will be the one who ends evil. Whereas if natural evil was the way that you're punished for your sin, then you've already paid for it. You don't need the seed of the woman. That's a good point. So you're you're so Jung is saying you know that uh, lessons need to be learned here, but he's obviously got the wrong people involved in who's yeah. learning and who's teaching. 
So you then kind of articulate really off right off the bat in the book, uh, in your commentary on what is the main lesson or what is it that that Job himself and Job that the book is trying to wrestle through. So I'm going to read you a quote and then I just kind of want you to unpack it for us a little yep. bit. Um, so the book of Job, you say, is about meaning. Uh, what is the meaning of life and what is the meaning of suffering? We're going to treat this book as a dialogue that requires us also to enter in and make the content our own. Meaning is a universal problem, which makes it all the more striking uh, that the book of Job is given at this early point in human history. Job wrestles with a problem that has touched everyone. Um, so why meaning? Yeah, uh, making meaning or making sense of the world, understanding, that, that's the uniquely human problem. That's what distinguishes us from, the, uh, from animals, right? So, and it, we can go along not even thinking about it until our life plans are interrupted by suffering, right? So I think that C.S. Lewis is the one who said that, right? Suffering is a, a megaphone to a deaf world. Now, I've always wondered about that because if it's a deaf world, that's actually cruel to use a megaphone, right? Not going to help. But the idea, you get the idea. Don't be technical. You get the idea, which is, yeah, you're going along and all of a sudden, bam, you're hit with suffering. And you say, well, I don't deserve this. How does this make any sense? And so you'll see that. I mean, that's that's a universal problem that you'll find uh, the world philosophers struggling with. I mean, you, you're probably familiar with the Babylonian Job, right? There's a, a text and there's debates about is Job just stolen from the Babylonians or vice versa. But yeah, the Babylonian Job, I would just take it as a separate example because Babylonians are humans, too, who wonder about this problem. And his right. answer is actually a lot like the way that people usually read Job. The Babylonian Job's answer is, I guess I just have to do whatever the gods say. I can't make it's, sense of it. It's interesting. Before before we started recording here, you mentioned how Job has a kind of correspondence to Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, yeah. um, which really kind of is getting at this idea. I mean, that, that's such a powerful and profound book, yet it's in so many ways flawed. Well, what, um, what, is, what does it grow out of? Why do you write that? Yeah. Well, yeah. What is the context, right? He's he's here. He is. He's a psycho Jewish psychoanalyst uh, in the 20th, mid 20th century. He's in Auschwitz. Yeah. And uh, he's observing uh, his fellow inmates in the camp. And he's he makes a very powerful observation that um, those who, who have a sense of meaning, even in the midst of their suffering, will will generally speaking, get through the suffering. Yeah. Um, and he said uh, one of the tells. Uh, for those who gave up any kind of sense of hope or meaning in the midst of their suffering, um, the tell would be that they would actually take out their hidden cigarettes and they would smoke that last cigarette. It's all then, done. Then they'd, they'd eventually die. This is the yeah. last piece of in, uh, pleasure in this life that he's, they're going to experience. They smoke it and then they die. Yeah. Uh, well, but I though, think, but I it's, think... it's powerful that those who, who have a sense of purpose and meaning in the midst of it all, they're the ones who can get through. And so that, yeah, so that I think seems to be the correspondence that you're making there. Yes. Uh, and I think... That's what's powerful about what Viktor Frankl is doing. And he also ends up trying to relate it back to the Logos itself. Um, and, and But then we have to look at the details of how he, because there's getting through it. Like uh, there's some greater purpose and that gets me through it. I don't think that's, I think there's more to it going on in Job. But the other side is with Viktor Frankl, the other pair is silence, right? The poem Night. And just saying, in the face of suffering, we have nothing to say. And so there's these two extremes, right, of try to find a purpose or just be silent. And, and, and in a way, what I'm suggesting is a little different than just find a purpose. It's we have to make sense of it in light of what we're told about God. And, and Job, 
says something like that in a, a few places. In chapter 7, he says something like that when he says, why does God care about what I do? Why does God care if I sin? It doesn't hurt God. So what's God's thing about making sure I'm not sinning? Like, he doesn't have anything better to do. Of course he has better things to do than that. And then later he'll say, I want to know the meaning of this. So it's not simply pressing his case to prove he's innocent, but making sense of, is the world fundamentally mismanaged? Or, or can we make sense of it somehow? And if we can't make sense of it, what's the purpose of existing at all? So if I could kind of try to say things, maybe my own words. So one, the way in which Job answers this sort of problem of evil is almost to tell us that suffering leads to meaning creation, the significance to, to understanding. Uh, suffering is a way in which we're communicated with to wake up to something that's beyond our kind of horizon of regular understanding. Is that, is that part of the answer? Is that... One way you put it? It could be. Let, let, we'll call that the greater good answer. And there's okay. lots of variations of this, which is that somehow green leads to a good. So there's the soul-making version, which says, because you like, like, like if there weren't houses burning down and killing children, there wouldn't be brave people running in to save children. So, so it, it creates things like bravery and, and courage and patience. Or there is the, uh, the version maybe you mentioned, like, it makes me consider things I hadn't considered before. Or I think Planning says, we don't even have to tell you what it is. Just for all we know, there's a greater good. And so the problem of evil is not an actually a logical problem. So it all depends on what the greater good is. I, think. I don't think we can go with Planning and say, for all we know. I think we have to fill it in specifically. And why? You have to show that the way, the kind of suffering that's done is necessary to lead to that greater good. Otherwise, God is being gratuitous and making you suffer, and you could have got it some other way. So I'll, be, I'll just state it, what I think it is. I, this might ruin it. Now people will say I don't have to buy the book. Um, you should buy the book. What I think the greater good is, which is the greater good is the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in his works. And that's both the works of creation and providence. But it's complicated by our self-deception about our condition and our self-justification to others about our condition. So it's at that point in Genesis 3 that God imposes the curse, right? At first, they have an inner, inner feeling of shame, and they cover themselves. That's a picture, I think, of self-deception, because they could have had an inner feeling of shame and repented. Said, look what we've done. Forgive us. And they didn't repent. They covered it up. And then they get another chance. God asks them a question. Says, where are you? I don't think that's an information question for God. Like, hey, I, where are you at? It's the existential question. Where are you? And again, they could repent, and they don't. They both blame, they blame others. They justify themselves. Then it's interesting. God doesn't argue with them. Like how often if you have a friend who you know has done something and they're justifying themselves, how bad do you want to just get in there and argue? God doesn't argue. Just it transitions right from there to the curse and the promise. So the, so the, the story here is not just that we need more information about God. The story here is about our condition. We already have all that information we need from creation. But not only have we ignored it, We've deceived ourselves and others about that. And it takes this kind of suffering to tear that away from us so that Job can finally confess, now I see you. So that's, I think, where the solution is. And that's why this is necessary. And that's a fixed piece. There, there's a certain fixed piece in a philosophical argument. I think one of the main ones for Job is he repents. 
you don't repent of something that's not a sin. Then you just grow. Say, hey, thanks for the information book about creation, God. Now I know a lot more facts about the animals. This is wonderful. No, Job thinks he sinned. And he repents of it. And he has to offer a sacrifice. And there's a sacrifice offered for his friends. Vicarious atonement is pictured there. Your sin ultimately is not going to be covered by the animal dying. So we have all that. That's why I say it's like a bridge into our need for a vicarious atonement. It's interesting that you're talking about knowledge too, because in the end there, um, when he does have that repentance, he speaks a lot about now I know, right? Like mm -hmm. there's, yeah. and it's not merely, as you say, epistemological, but it is existential. You know, the, the, the fundamental problem that humans have, even before our fall, is knowledge of God. Like God is fundamentally incomprehensible. That's why revelation is so important. Natural revelation is so important because it's going to reveal the incomprehensible God. Yeah, we um, know God as he's revealed himself to us. Right. We know him as by his effects and those sorts of things. Um, and so knowledge seems to be like this, this really big issue, you know, come, yeah. coming that's, into the conclusion of Job. Exactly. It's a, that's a great the, the philosophical aspect of that. Because it's interesting, right? In one way, you could say when the dialogue with Job begins, God, just answer his question. Right. He asked a question. You're God. You could probably answer in three sentences and give a great answer. But he doesn't. He asks Job roughly 70 questions. And they often begin this way. Have you considered? So what I think those are doing is exposing the human condition of thinking we know when we don't know by asking a question. That's where this is. I don't even want to compare it to Socrates because this is divine. This is God himself. But that's the was the earthly thing Socrates said he was doing, right? Exposing people who think they know and don't know. Here we have God himself. Mm. What does God do when he speaks to Job? Does he defend himself, God? Does he give a quick argument? No, he says to Job, to get Job from there to chapter 42, have you considered this? Have you considered this? And that exposes that Job thought he knew and he didn't know. And it's all from general revelation. He doesn't say, did you read Matthew chapter uh, 15? Right? It's all, have you considered this about creation, this about creation, and getting into some pretty fine details about it which is what we're called to do. The, the works of God are glorious from the greatest to the least, the, the details of them. And the more you know about it, the more you know the glory of God revealed. So it seems like with what you're saying, think about like epistemologic, how do you know kind of questions. Job both needs to experience nature, suffering, but also receive special revelation. So how does Job... Like, how would you clarify how Job comes to know what he needs to know? Like, I, obviously, God reveals himself at the end and talks to him. But how does the prior experience contribute yeah. to his knowledge? Like, what is the interplay there? Yeah, there has to be a process. I think the theological phrase is conviction of sin and death. There has to be a process that the one, the one word is humbled. Be humbled before God for pretensions that you raised up against God. You thought you knew. And you didn't know. And you basically get put flat on your face. And all you can say is, my God, forgive me. Mm. So this, and this is what true wisdom really is then. That'd be the beginning of wisdom, that fear of God. Where that's the, the awe, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So we talked, to, I think before we started recording, we are talking about, well, isn't Ecclesiastes philosophical too? Yeah, right. That's wisdom doesn't begin by, uh, questioning material causes like the first Greek philosophers, it begins in the fear of God. 
And that's not, and someone say, well, no, now you're jumping to scripture. No, that's a general revelation truth. You could show from general revelation, the light of nature shows that. It's interesting. Uh, Job 28 ends the last verse. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Yeah. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So wisdom and understanding are there. Fear of the Lord is there. Mm -hmm. And if you think of Job 28, maybe as an interpretive guide to understanding Job, at least to some degree, maybe that chapter of Job 28 then clarifies what it is that Job comes to see, namely the fear of the Lord, wisdom, understanding. I think so. But but the how is important though still because maybe even Young would say that in this sense. He thinks of fear as just craven fear. And you come to realize God's omnipotent. He could crush me. I better shut my mouth. And that's not what's going on here because before God speaks, Job and his friends all affirm the omnipotence of God. That's not some new revelation that God gives right. them. And they all affirm, they all go to creation and talk about creation. So none of those things are new. The fear of God comes in the realization of your own condition before God. Mm, it's just it, punishment it, of that condition is fearful. It, it's, so, it's, it, it's relative to the feeling of the sublime in a sense. Yeah, you're struck by that, the sublimity of God. But I would want to make sure we don't shift to a, just a non-cognitive thing because sometimes the sublime or awe could just be a, a sensation, like a Schleiermacher, uh, wow, I'm dependent. But I think this is a cognitive answer, giving truths about God that can be demonstrated and that you have no excuse for for rejecting them. I, I'm thinking of it in terms of like, you know, out here in Colorado, you climb a 14er, you're up 14,000 feet above sea level, you're looking across this massive mountain range that's just surrounding you and you're just awestruck by it and you have this sense of like your own insignificance. And that's, that's permeating... But that, and it's, I, I take that as that's God's natural revelation. That's God actually showing him his own immensity, showing us his own immensity. And we have this feeling of our own significance for the natural world where if we're reading it, if we're reading natural revelation rightly, then that's actually showing us that God is immense. I'm actually really insignificant. And what it does is it has this effect of just like you're drawn further into nature. You know, there's this, you see shirts all over the place and bumper stickers, you know, the, the mountains are calling and I must go. There's just mm -hmm. something compelling you out there. It's the same thing with God. It's like, you see him as immensity. You're, there's this fear, but then it's like attraction that kind of draws you towards it. Yeah, real. So, so I think that's right. But, but think about, I think there's a, a Buddhist study centers in, in Boulder. So they would probably be able to quote. Yeah, exactly it's what called Naropa, Naropa University in Boulder. Yeah, they'd be able to quote exactly what you just said and say, I agree to that. That's what the Buddha taught. So it's not just that I'm insignificant, which is true in terms of the immensity of things, but it's also that I'm made in the image of God and I've rejected God. So I'd, I'd add that you know, the Buddhist won't be able to say that. I've rejected God. I'm guilty. I have no excuse for what I've done. And so the book of Job is a story of what does it take to get a person who is otherwise blameless? You know, he, he's not a notorious sinner. He's, he's upstanding, but blameless. I don't take that to mean sinless. I think it's like, it's mentioned that way about elders. Elders need to be blameless. No one thinks your church elders are without original sin. I have no sin, right? So you don't have anyone in society who could blame you for something, but you're still a sinner in the same respect for all sinners. And the book of Job shows how much humans resist hearing that. Because Job could have heard it back in the first chapters and said, yeah, now I see it. And he resisted it. He resisted it against his friends, even though they're wrong, against Elihu. And you might want to ask me about that. Because I, I, I think you, I view Elihu positively. 
And then he he uh, has to have God himself ask him 70 questions before he repents. And this is the best among us. So we should be humbled by that fact to say, man, if uh, that scares me. If that's what it takes, Job, I better learn from reading about Job, not not the way Job learned. Oh, and I have, an, I have a question for you. Yeah. <laughs> is, is Elihu good? <laughs> yeah. Well, I wondered about, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I've, I've, I've gone through this material with seminary students and they're usually are somewhat surprised. I take this view. I basically say he's preparing the way, which is a mm. reference to uh, Isaiah and John the Baptist. Mm. Um, that's not unique. You see that in Calvin. You'll see that in Joseph Carroll, who was one of the Westminster divines, wrote a very long commentary. <clears throat> and then um, uh, Matthew Henry, which is more popularizer. If I mention Matthew Henry among seminary students, they roll their eyes. I was like, come on, he's, he's still got some good stuff in there. Oh, Matthew Henry's incredible. Matt, what, the benefit of Matthew Henry's commentary yeah. is that he takes the whole Puritan tradition. He comes right yeah. at the end of the Puritan tradition. He takes the whole thing and synthesizes it yeah. to a commentary. You, you yeah, don't, he's great. So, you don't get, oh, he's incredible. So my view of Elihu is just that one, right? And, and Matthew Henry's the one who uses the phrase, the light of nature, about Job. And that Job's called to reflect in the light of nature. So in that sense... I feel confident being what, what, like I said earlier, was called the magisterial Protestant tradition. It's not, I, I wouldn't take credit and say, hey, I figured these things out. But um, yeah, so I think Elihu's preparing the way. He's not one of the three friends. Mm. They're, they're just wrong. They have this equation. If you're suffering, you sin. And it's, and Job gives great counter arguments against that to show how, no, there's a lot of people who sin and they don't suffer at all. And there's no like, like oh, I didn't, hadn't thought about that. Really? You hadn't thought about that? Hmm. but then Elihu comes in and he doesn't accuse Job of that because those guys actually accuse Job of some really gross things if you pay attention to the details hmm. they accuse him of uh, worshipping the moon you catch that in the details uh, be my idolater hmm. and it's curious if this is early in human history think about that if it's early in human history and there's still a tendency to lean towards belief in God the creator because of early events in human history, then the worship of the moon might have been somewhat of a new introduction, like a, a new fad, like, hey, let's worship the moon. This is hype. Um, this is not essential to Joel. I'm just telling you this could be what's going on. So, yeah, they're saying, yeah, you've been caught up in one of these new uh, heterodox teachings, right, about God and you're worshiping the moon. Because for us reading it in the 21st century, we're thinking that's an ancient problem. But that might have been like a new, fresh problem. I'd be curious to know how new that would be. The way I read Genesis one, um, when Moses is describing, you know, God as, you know, the creator of all of these things in the sky, you know, he's, he's asserting that God is sovereign over those things which would have been the gods of the, you know, the sun, the moon and the stars of these divine beings. I think it explains, you know, the weird parts of Psalm 121 where it's like, you know, the moon's not going to strike you by night. Like why, why would the moon strike me by night? And it's like, Oh, it's because these are divine figures that are hostile to us um and i think i think it's there in yeah Genesis so well that so that's why i said i would I, I don't want this the things i've said before this are more important to pin on this but if job was written by moses about a real historical character who lived just before abraham and the reason why i'd say that is because there's no mention of uh the children of abraham of anybody the nation of israel there's no mention of the people of god they're just people so if it's written by Moses about a guy just before Abraham, then that's just right after Babel, pretty significant judgment of God on the world, and maybe still in people's minds. But, and I, I think that that's one of the Jewish traditions, written by Moses when his time in the desert about 
not one of the children of Israel. So someone just before that happened. But if someone contended with that and said, no, here's this evidence, here's that evidence. I don't think that actually changes the things I've said, though, about the content of the book. Yeah, because there's a universal quality to this, mm-hmm. as you even note in the book. So you, you're talking a lot. I mean, your own background, you published in natural law. Um, uh, I think one couple of books on that, on the natural law. Um, yeah, nat- I say natural law, natural theology. I jokingly say that I'm the uh, ASU chair of natural theology. There's no <laughs> such chair, but <laughs> if there was, I would want it. But nobody else wants it anyway, so why not give it to you? <laughs> um, so what is what is that? What is the role then? We kind of alluded to it a few times already, but what is the role of of nature? What's it? What's what is it that Job? What does he know, and what are the limits of his knowledge at this point when it comes to nature? Yeah, let me give a let me give just a quick example. of what we could know from, from general relation. This is in chapter 21 of the confession. Here's chapter 21.1. Think about what this is saying, each part of it. It says, the light of nature shows there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, and with all the soul, and with all the might. That's the first sentence in part one. All of that is known by the light of nature. So that's why I say it's not Schleiermacher. It's not just I have some inner sense of dependence. No, you can know, because if you connect this up with question four of the short Westminster Shorter Catechism, when it says, no, there is a God, that means you know that there is a being who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging, and being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The light of nature shows that. That's a lot, right? And we've rejected it. That's what gets us into Romans chapter one. We've turned our back on that. We haven't paid attention to it. So the book of Job is answering the question, what's it going to take to get even the blameless to turn back? So here's a quick question for you on that. So if you're a Christian, you have not rejected the light of nature anymore. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Okay. Well, presumably you, you have. by the skin of your teeth, so to speak. Yeah. But, but I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're transformed, if you're regenerated, if you have a renewed mind, Ideally, you can see nature better. You should. You, yeah, but but I guess that you're, maybe there's an important distinction hinting here on between justification and sanctification. Mm. I'm not bringing anyone's justification into question. But you could be justified, and you don't really get much of the Bible at all. So, you, so too, you could be justified, you don't really get creation at all. But you have it. You just have to repent of not having done that. Right, right. Uh, so I so guess that could my, be part of your repentance is forgive me, just like Job prays. I repent for not having seen you. So, but I think that changes. So, if if someone reads Job before faith, I think that might change how they understand and read the book in the Enlightenment. But if someone reads Job after being a Christian for sixty years, there's a different kind of reflection that goes into it. I would imagine, oh, yeah. because I think ideally, if you're a Christian for sixty years you're able to discern nature to a fairly adequate degree. You'd hope and so, yeah. So, yeah, so I'm just curious, like just going back to this question of the light of nature, I mean, that's a big Westminster uh, term as well. Mm-hmm. How does that, how, just more practically abstracting from Joe, as a Christian, how do we understand the light of nature? How does yeah, that yeah. change the way we view things from suffering to even the good, to a great sunset, to beauty? Like wh- what's the difference between before faith and after faith and how we enjoy nature? Yeah, and incidentally, uh, John Fesco is one of my okay. persons who endorsed the book, and, and he just came out with a, a work yeah. on the light of nature. I've read the Apologetics book, right? 
Right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Reforming apologetic. So, um, yeah, how does that change it? Well, again, I, I guess one distinction I'd make is, again, between the, the non-cognitive and the cognitive. It's not just an awe of God hmm. in, a, in a feeling sense, but it's like what the confession did. It's propositional. You can say, God, this part of creation, that's, that's why he gets into the details, and he doesn't give us the answers. He says, have you considered this? And so when you're asking about the eagle, we'll fill it in. And what does that tell us about God, right? Give the answers. It's in details. It's not just a feeling or a sense of, of uh, enlightenment. But you should be able to tell us something here about God. I mean, make an analogy to a human romantic relationship. Because we see that analogy in the prophets. Uh, I don't think a valentine, they don't want a general card that says, hey, happy Valentine's Day. When I'm around you, I have a happy feeling. They want details about why you like them, right? Your eyes this and your hair that, right? And, and so that's that's how love is. If you love God, you your know the details. That. <laughs> yeah, this is great, right? So if you knew, if you love God, you'd know the details about who God is. Hmm. That's why I love that. That sentence ends with that from Moses, the love of God, right? Not uh, because that's not, some of them say, well, that's the Christian. The Christians are about love. No, Moses said you need to love God. Mm-hmm. The law is summarized that way. So moving moving to back to what we were talking about before with Viktor Frankl, um, you know, because I, I was blown away by that book, but I was also really frustrated by it. You know, he develops this whole kind of therapy that he calls logotherapy. So we noted the logos there. And uh, and obviously he can be, you know, he's Jewish, so he's not going to be thinking that, you know, Christianity is a great way forward necessarily uh, towards, uh, you know, any kind of therapeutic help. But Nevertheless, it was amazing to me that he didn't even like reference John one, you know, in in yeah. the book. Uh, obviously, you got the logos with Heraclitus and the Stoics. And I was just going to say, like, yeah, if we, if we get excited every time the word logos shows up, we'll, we'll get too easily excited, right? So, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, so it seems like maybe Job kind of, you know, and, and it's interesting. It's a the book of the Jewish canon, and uh, and Job is kind of entering in, and he doesn't use the language of logos per se, but. Um, it's definitely there conceptually, and it's and it is tied to Christ. You read yeah. it in terms of our greater New Testament canon, uh, you know. So you have you have these statements along the way, and need for a mediator talking about his redeemer that lives. So how do you think then that Christ actually plays into this kind of philosophical reading of Job? Yeah, there's some commentaries that really try to have a close connection, like almost a one to one with Christ. It's all foreshadowing Christ. Um, I think it is in the same way Genesis 3 is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent with more detail than that, though. But I think it is right because the book begins and ends with with a sacrifice. So it begins and ends with vicarious atonement. You can't think that would just be the animals. I mean, Peter works us through that argument in the New Testament, right? Clearly, this this foreshadows something else, a different sacrifice. So you have that there. Then. Why Job is suffering, I don't know. This is where I don't think the one-to-one connection works because Job actually has sin and his suffering for him is a callback to God to stop and think. Whereas I, I don't think that's why Christ suffers uh, for his own. So so for there, I, I think he's the paradigmatic sinner. I use this phrase, root sin, in the book. And what I, I'm making, obviously, a connection to plants, right? The, the root of the problem versus the fruit. You can you can nip off the fruits and you haven't stopped the weed. And root sin, I define the way Paul does in Romans 3, as not seeking God. And all the other sins we think of that pop up are connected back to that. 
And so although Job hadn't done those fruit sins, he, like all of us, didn't seek God as he should have. It's sort of like when we talk about radical depravity, the idea of radix, which gets it at root. And it's yeah. kind of like at the core, the kind of yeah. grounding of who you, who you are, orientation of who you are. Yeah. So this, I think this shows us a few things that are clearly preparing the way for Christ. It shows us the human condition, both in, in sin, but also in self-deception and self-justification. It shows us how natural evil is used to bring about that humbling. And it shows us the need for a sacrifice in our place because Job doesn't end with his repentance. It's not enough to say, hey, I'm sorry, I'll start doing the right thing. There's a sacrifice that has to be given. Another has to die in your place. So Job teaches that very directly. Hmm. So, Owen, I, I think this might be a and, good and place. So, to... That's kind of a good thing to bring up today before tomorrow. Today is for people listening maybe Possible later. Sacrifice. Tomorrow's oh, yeah. Good Friday. That's true. It'll be, it'll be a good Friday. Um, as we kind of close down, tell me about your book. Like, How can someone find purchase? purchase 10 for their church library and give, you know, how do they do that? Where do they buy? Is it, is it, is it out yet? When does it come out? Yeah, it's on Amazon, okay. Barnes and Noble in hardback. Um, I think there's going to be an ebook also, okay. but I kind of like having the, the actual book. I'm pretty Agree. Agree. There. So yeah, it's available right now. You can go on there and you can get a copy. And uh, I, I heard, did I hear some, were you telling me Ian that CCU's buying multiple copies? No, that was, that was a rumor. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be sure to make sure the library gets. Yeah. Um, and on that note, who, who should read your book? Like if someone's listening, like, Hey, I like the book of Job. Ian and I have talked about the theology a bit. We're learning about the philosophy of it now, which I know overlaps. I'm not trying to say they're exactly as hugely different things, but uh, who should read your book? Is it just pastors? Is it like, you made an interesting point earlier, like someone later in life might have a different perspective. I think that would be even be true for a non-believer. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when you read an older person, even though they're getting the book wrong, you see a depth of reflection there. However, I, I, I didn't, I wrote my previous books, I would call academic and they're written for academic audiences mostly. And, and you'll see that when you get into this kind of technical writing. And I wrote this one on purpose to be more like a Socratic dialogue, to be more interactional with the audience, because I don't want it to be just for seminary students. I think seminary students would benefit from it, but I think anybody who wonders about suffering would benefit from it. And I, and so I try to write it in a way that's accessible to anybody. Mm -hmm. You have a, when I read it, you have a very kind of like direct writing style. It's just kind of like, bam, it's like, you're just, you're, it's like, you're talking right off the page directly to the reader that you could, yeah. you could just feel it. That doesn't, it doesn't have like this kind of like academic quality. You're trying to pull in all these various yeah. types of arguments. I didn't want it to be detached. No, it's very direct. And it's just like, and you, and you kind of maintain that right throughout the book. Hmm. Well, we'll link to it, I think pretty easily in our kind of show notes and all that. And so it's fun to talk to you, Owen. I feel like, me. yeah, I really liked, I'll, I'll kind of summarize it. I really liked how you've described sort of the, what Job actually learns through the process or what we ought to learn from reading Job, I guess, that kind of the apocalypse of God to kind of wake in the traditional sense of apocalypse, revealing of God to kind of awaken us to the meaning of suffering and all these sorts of things. I know you defined it in your book. We'll define it better than I have now. So don't oh, take right, my yeah. me as the final word, but listen earlier to what Owen said and also read the book. So thank you, Owen. Thanks. Ian. Thanks, we'll see you, We'll see you guys next time.